What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week we saw that Jacob brought his entire family down to Egypt and he ultimately did this in obedience to God and he stopped and still in the promised land wondering, is this really what God wants me to do to make this big move? And the Lord tells him uh, not only to do it, but God gives him some promises that, hey, you know what, I'm going to make you a great nation while you're in Egypt and I'm going to go with you and your descendants and I promise to bring you back, or at least your descendants back to the promised land. And we um, finished chapter 46 with Jacob and his entire family arriving there in Egypt. And they have this great reunion, especially uh, Jacob and Joseph there after having not seen each other for 22 years. And now as we come to chapter 47, we're going to see several important things that happen now as they've left the promised land and they've come now to Egypt, some significant things that take place in Egypt. First, we're going to see something that Pharaoh gives to Jacob and his descendants and something significant that we can learn from that. And then second, we're going to see something that Jacob gives to Pharaoh. Uh, and there's going to be something we can learn from that as well. And then we're going to see how Joseph handles the needs of the world. Remember, the famine is going to be seven years long. We're only starting the third year. And so there's some issues that happen and some needs that are there. And Joseph's going to deal with that. And we're going to see some things that we can learn from that. And then fourth, we're going to see what Jacob asked Joseph to promise him uh, at the end of this chapter. So with all four of these different things that we're going to look at here in chapter 47, you know, not only, you know, do they share with us events that took place, but I think with each one of them, there's something that we can learn, something that we can apply to our lives. And so let's start with what um, Pharaoh does here for um, Jacob and his descendants in the first six verses of chapter 47. It says this, then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servant dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any um, competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Now, if you remember last chapter ended with Joseph sharing some things with his father and his brothers, and he says, you know what, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to speak to Pharaoh on your behalf. But when you get the opportunity to speak to Pharaoh, he's going to ask you what your occupation is. And you need to be honest and you need to tell him your occupation is that you guys are shepherds. This is important that you share this with them. And the reason that Joseph wants to clarify this, wants to make sure they communicate this to Pharaoh, we're told at the end of last chapter, is because Joseph wants them to dwell in a very specific place in the land of Egypt. Uh, It's uh, spoken of as the uh, land of Goshen. Now, as you can see from this map, Goshen was in the countryside of Egypt. It was away from uh, the big city, away from uh, the influence of a lot of the Egyptian main population. Uh, it's on the west, uh, north side of the Nile River there. Uh, you can see the, the pictures of the pyramid. Uh, um, sorry, it, it's uh, on the east side. The, the west side is the pyramids. 
that's where the major cities are. That's where they ran down south of the Nile there. A lot of the population was there. But that northern eastern part uh, that was just kind of set aside for pasture and for animals. And so Goshen's kind of the, the countryside area. And it wasn't a place that many Egyptians went to. If you see from this next picture, um, this is actually a modern picture of a NASA satellite, and you can notice how fertile the ground is there because Egypt is very deserty for most of it, but around the Nile River you have a lot of green because of the water, but up at the northern part you have a lot of different rivers and water sources, so you know it was much more of a place where a lot of things could grow, which would be necessary if you're going to have animals that need to eat uh, the grounds, grass and things. And so that picture on the right, that's actually a modern picture of what Goshen looks like today. So you can see that uh, it is very green, a great place to raise animals. And so that's what Goshen was kind of set aside for the cattle, for the shepherds. But um, something else important to note is that the Egyptians, they passed that on to another nationality. I remember at the end of chapter 46, Joseph said, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. You know, that was something that they despised. That was never, you know, something that they wanted to do. And so the Egyptians weren't shepherds. They gave that to other nationalities and they kind of set aside this land for cattle and for shepherds for other people to do that and not themselves. And so it wasn't just that it was isolated because it's in the country. It's also that it's isolated because it's full of shepherds that the Egyptians didn't want anything to do with. So they would not have have gone to the land of Goshen um, very often. And so this is a place that Joseph wants his family to go so they could be separated from the Egyptians themselves. And so here in the first six verses of chapter 47, Joseph does what he says he would do. He, he goes to Pharaoh on their behalf. He's the mediator between Pharaoh and his family. And he tells Pharaoh, hey, you know what? My family's here and they're shepherds and they're in the land of Goshen. And so Joseph has already placed his family in Goshen, but he wants to make sure they get to stay there. Even though he's second in command to Pharaoh, he's not in full command. And so Pharaoh could say, oh, you know, you guys have this occupation. Why don't you live down here near the Nile? Because, you know, we got a lot of fishermen there. Or you have this, hey, we're building a lot of stuff over by the pyramid. You guys are builders. Why don't you live there? Uh, so Pharaoh ultimately would have the ultimate say of where they would go. And that's why Joseph says, when he asks your occupation, make sure you tell him that you're shepherds. Because it'll make sense then for you to be staying in the land of Goshen. And so Pharaoh speaks to Joseph's brothers. They tell him that they're shepherds. They tell him their fathers are shepherds. All of them are shepherds. And that right now they're dwelling in the land of Goshen. And that's where they would like to continue to dwell. Uh, and so Pharaoh gives them that land. And he speaks of the land as the best land of uh, Egypt. And it's really the best land for raising cattle. It was fertile, good for growing. Um, and so this was the perfect place for shepherds to dwell, but it wasn't just that God wants to take shepherds and put them in Egypt where shepherds can flourish. That wasn't God's ultimate plan. He wasn't trying to raise a nation of shepherds. He was trying to raise a nation, period. And so it's like, I want to put you in a place where it's the best place for you to grow your families, for you to grow as a nation that's not going to be influenced and impacted by the Egyptians. And as we looked at last week, Israel and his family were only a total of 70 people that arrived there in Egypt. And in 430 years of being in the land of Goshen, God is going to take those 70 people and he is going to make them into a nation of several million people before they depart back to the promised land. And we noted that that's going to be a fulfillment of what God promised. Because when, when Jacob's wondering, should I go? God promises, I'm going to make you a great nation in Egypt. And then he promises, I will take you back out of Egypt to the promised land. But the great thing about Goshen is it helped the nation of Israel be distinct from Egypt. When the nation of Israel grew to over 2 million people, when we look in the book of Exodus, we don't see them having intermarried with the Egyptians. We don't see them worshiping the pagan gods of the Egyptians. They are still a distinct nation because they were left alone there in the land of Goshen to grow the way that God desired them to grow. So Goshen wasn't just the best place in Egypt to raise cattle. It was definitely the best place for the nation of Israel to not be corrupted and to grow 
the way that the Lord wanted them to. Now, something interesting to note is in the Bible, Egypt is often a picture of the world. And here we have the, the nation of Israel, and they're dwelling in Egypt. They're dwelling ultimately in this picture of the world. But God makes it possible for them to dwell in Egypt without having Egypt dwell in them. And this is something that's significant, that they're able to dwell in Egypt, but yet they're not worshiping the Egyptian gods, they're not following the Egyptian ways, they're not intermarrying with the Egyptians and and allowing all the different things of that culture that were ungodly to change what God wanted of them. So they live and dwell in Egypt, but Egypt did not live and dwell in them. And God is the one who made that possible for them. And that encourages me because that's something that God wants us to do as well as believers. We get saved, but we're still living in this world that's full of sinful people and sinful temptations, and we're meant to be in the world, but not of the world. We live here, we want to be in the world, but we don't want the world to be in us. We don't want the world to be the thing that we're living for and acting like. And two of the main things that God gives us to help us not have the world dwell in us are two very important relationships. The first one being the relationship of Jesus, our relationship with Him. The more you dwell in your time with Jesus, the more it will help you not to dwell uh, and have the world dwell in you. But He's also given us the church, the followers of Jesus. We have Jesus in our relationship with Him, and then we have those who follow Jesus in our relationship with them. And the more time we spend with both of those groups, the more it protects us, from having the world dwell in us, the more it encourages us to dwell where we should uh, in our relationship with the Lord. And so God has given us that to help us be free from the world and the things of the world and what it wants to do in the lives of believers. And so the first thing I want you to take note of tonight is in order to keep the world from dwelling in us, we need to regularly take time to dwell with Jesus and other believers. And this is something, whenever I'm talking with people and they're struggling with kind of allowing the things of the world to dwell in their life and they're following these things, they're giving in to temptations, I usually will ask two different things. And as a pastor, I'll usually know the second question, which is how often are you fellowshipping with other believers because they're usually not very regular in their attendance. But the other question, which is more important, is how is your relationship with the Lord doing? How often are you spending time personally with Jesus? And almost always the answer is not that much. And you see that correlation. You neglect time with Jesus, neglect time with Him, neglect time with other believers and fellowship with believers. The result often is the temptations of the world overtake you. You allow the world to start dwelling in you because the things that God has given to protect you and to help you not do that, you have neglected. So first we see Pharaoh gives Jacob and his family this land of Goshen. And now we're going to see that Jacob gives something to the all-powerful Pharaoh, which another thing that we can learn from, verse 7-12 through says this, Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before uh, Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not uh, attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, a Pharaoh had com- as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. So Joseph has brought five of his brothers to speak to Pharaoh to tell them that they're you know shepherds. And now he has a special meeting. It's him, and he brings his dad before Pharaoh. And the first question that Pharaoh asks is, "How old are you?" Now, this seems kind of like an odd very first question, but most commentators look at the age of how, you know, the life expectancy of that time, and Jacob has already surpassed that quite uh, by a large margin. He's going to live for another 17 years after this, but he's 130 right now, and so this might have been the oldest person that has ever stood before Pharaoh that he's ever had a conversation with, and so, hey, how old are you, 
Jacob. And notice Jacob's response to Pharaoh. He says, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not obtained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the day of their pilgrimage. In Jacob's response, notice that he identifies him first, himself first and foremost as a pilgrim, and he also identifies his father Isaac and his uh, grandfather Abraham as pilgrims as well. The days of the years of my pilgrims are 130 years. Hey, I've been a pilgrim on this earth for 130 years, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the day of their pilgrimage. I've been here for 130 years as a pilgrim on this earth, but my father lived even longer than that, and my grandfather as a pilgrim lived even longer than that. Now, a pilgrim is a foreigner who's from far from home who journeys in a foreign land. And Jacob recognized something important about his life. He realized, this is what I am. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a foreigner, just like my father Isaac, just like my grandfather Abraham. This world is not our home. We're just pilgrims. We're just passing through. Ultimately, their home was in heaven. You know, this is something so important for you and I to realize as well. The day that you and I accept Jesus Christ, there is a change in our ultimate home destination. We now become pilgrims in this world. Prior to accepting Christ, this world is our home. That's what we focus on. That's what we think about. It's kind of all that we live for. And then all of a sudden, we accept Christ and we realize, you know what? Now we have the hope of eternity in heaven where our true home lies, where we're actually meant to be living, where we're going to be children of God, following God in heaven. What a wonderful place. And we realize now the rest of our time here in this world, in this earth, we're just foreigners. We're just pilgrims. We're just passing through because we realize we have our ultimate destination and home in heaven. And we need to live with the realization that this world is not our home. Live with that understanding that I'm just passing through. And you can easily see if someone, they might understand that intellectually, they might have read that scripturally, they might have heard that taught as a believer in Christ, but yet it hasn't become something that they live. You look at their life and you realize they're living for the things of this world. And they don't have a life that seems themselves as just passing through. It's a life of let's, you know, put down all the roots right here. Let's get all that we can gather that this world has to offer right now. And let's just indulge in what this world gives. And you see from their life that they've missed this reality. Of, hey, there's something that we should be living for that's far superior than this world. There's something that we should be living for that's our true home and not to be wasting time with the things that don't really matter in this life. Jesus gives us a challenge in this area in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19-21. through 21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is bringing up a reality. You're going to lay up treasures in one or two places. It's either going to be here on this earth or up in heaven. And he shares with us why we shouldn't be laying treasures here on this earth, but instead up in heaven, because the treasures here on this earth are temporary. They can be destroyed. They can be taken from you. They're not going to last for very long. Whereas the treasures in heaven, they're eternal. They'll never be destroyed. They'll never be taken from you. You will get to enjoy them for all of eternity. And so he's saying, you know, just weigh that out. <laughs> Which one's a better thing to invest in? The one that you know ultimately will be destroyed or taken or lost? I mean, even if you have it till the day you die, you know, you don't get to take it with you into eternity. Or having the one that is always going to be with you for all eternity that you're going to have that will be never taken, never destroyed. But then Jesus reveals something else. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The thing that you treasure the most, your heart is going to follow that. 
And this is why where our treasure is is so important because that's where our heart is going to be as well. So if we treasure the things of this earth, guess what? Your heart is going to be for the things of this earth instead of for the things of God. If you treasure the things of God, then your heart's going to be for the things of God and not for the things of this earth. And you'll see that in your life and you'll see that in the lives of others. It's, it's obvious as you start watching how they live, watching what they invest in, what they truly treasure and what ultimately their heart desires. Pilgrims store up treasure where their true home is because they realize, you know what, I'm just passing through. I'm not going to waste my time investing in treasures here. I'm going to put my treasures where I'm ultimately going. The second thing I want you to take note of is that we need to understand that we are pilgrims and this world is not our home. So we need to store up treasures in heaven, not on this earth. You know, Paul, I think, had one of the best statements of a, a pilgrim mindset. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think that's a wonderful pilgrim perspective. To live on this life, it's all for Jesus. Because why? That's where I'm headed. That's what my identity's in. That's where I'm going to be with Him for all eternity. So my life here is not for what I can get, not for how I can accumulate what this world can offer. It's all about living for Jesus. And to die? Well, that's gain. Because I finally get to go home. I finally get to go where I'm meant to be. I'm going to get to go dwell with Jesus forever in heaven. And so the pilgrim mindset, while I'm here on my pilgrimage, I live for Jesus, and when I finally get to go home, what a glorious day that will be as well. Now, after Jacob responds to Pharaoh's question about how old he was, notice that Jacob does something for Pharaoh that I think maybe would have even taken Pharaoh back a little bit. Verse 10 says, So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out before Pharaoh. Now, I want you to picture this because Pharaoh is the all-powerful man in the world at that time. Egypt is the ruling power of the world, and Pharaoh is the ruler of that ruling power. And so everybody who comes to Pharaoh, for the most part, is asking something from him, asking for him to bless them, asking for him to protect them, asking for his wisdom. You know, he's the man that people come to for something. He's not the, the one that, that people come often to, to give something unless it's like, hey, let me give you this in exchange for your protection or let me give you this in exchange for whatever. But here we see something from Jacob that is just great. And I think that Jacob wasn't taken back, wasn't dazzled, wasn't intimidated as so many people I'm sure were, as they stood before Pharaoh of, oh my goodness, I'm before Pharaoh right now. I mean, this is the leader of Egypt, and wow, he's so powerful. And you know, But Jacob, he blesses him. And I think this is so important for us to just kind of take in for a moment, because you know, I think so often when we look at this world, we think, man, this world has, is so impressive, it has so much to offer. But the reality is the world's empty. It doesn't have anything really of subsequence to, to, to offer. We as believers are the ones who really have something worthwhile that lasts for eternity to offer. And so often we stand before people that we think, man, the world says is so prominent and so important and so powerful. And we think, oh, well, they, they, they can do so much. And we miss the reality of what we can do for those people. Oh, they have all this money, yeah, but they're still lost and they're going to hell. Oh, they have all this power, yes, but they're still lost and going to hell. Oh, they have all this influence, yes, but they're still lost and going to hell. They really don't know the thing that they need to know that we possess and can bless them with. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're told one of the most amazing things that we possess as believers that this world desperately needs. Verses 6 and 7 says, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. You know, we look at so much of what the world has and these different leaders have, and we think, oh, what do I have to offer? Well, we have the greatest treasure possible. 
we have to offer something that is more valuable than the all the money in the world, more valuable than all the power in the world, more valuable than all the influence in the world. And we sometimes think, what do I have to offer? Well, we have so much to offer. We have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We have the good news of what Jesus has done. We have the relationship with the Creator of heaven and earth, and we can share that with those people who have so much that this world offers, but not what God offers. Oh, they might have a lot in this life, but that's as good as it's ever going to be for them if they don't learn the good news of what Christ has done because their eternity will be in hell. The third thing I want you to take note of is we should always seek to be a blessing to this world through sharing and living like Jesus. You know, it's been said, some people are a blessing wherever they go. And others are a blessing whenever they go, as in when they leave. Which one are you? And maybe all of us can look at our lives and say, you know what, I've maybe been both. Oh, oh, I've been a blessing when I come and people are pleased that I'm there and I'm an encouragement and I'm the light of Jesus. And if I'm around unbelievers, I'm someone who's boldly proclaiming the gospel and it's a great thing that I'm there. But maybe there's been times when it's like, you know, it's a blessing when I leave. That's how people look at me. Oh man, this person has all these issues and problems and oh, here they come again and we don't want them around us. And which is true of us? You know, as ambassadors of Jesus, as those who are meant to be a light to this world, we should be the ones that are blessing the world. Whenever we come, people should be seeing Jesus. Well, now we're going to see how Joseph handles the needs of the world as they go through this famine and they start to give more and more of what they have until they have really nothing left to give, but yet they're in desperate need because this famine is lasting so long. And the grain, they're paying for it, and they're getting it, and they're eating it, and then it's gone, and then they're having to get more. And so it's in the very beginning of the third year, and we know that this famine is going to last for four more years, going to seven years. And so let's see what happens. The first thing that they give to Joseph, verses 13 and 14. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they brought, bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So the famine now is getting even more severe. It's already been two years, and now we're into year three, and it's so bad that there's no bread in all the land. So anything that people had been hoarding and keeping for the time that you know they had it now two years have gone we're in year three they got no more food and the world is languishing because of the famine so people give all the money they have to joseph all right joseph we're, we're starving here we, we've you know for the egyptians who knew it was coming because they were warned about it maybe they stockpiled a little bit as well but that's gone For those in Canaan and other places in the world who weren't really clued into the longevity of this famine, man, they're out of, you know, food too. And so now they bring all of their money and they buy all the grain that they can with the money that they possess. And Joseph, he gives them the grain for the money that they give. And then he takes all that money and he gives it to Pharaoh because Joseph is the one that's been put in this position to um, run this, but ultimately Pharaoh is the one who gets all the proceeds of everything. So the first thing that the people give to Joseph is their money in exchange for food, but that food doesn't last them for the rest of the famine. Uh, It lasts them for a little bit of time, and then all of a sudden their grain is gone, but the famine's still there. There's still no crops. There's still no food except for what Joseph possesses, and so they come back to Joseph, and they need some more grain, and now they're going to need to exchange something else because their money's gone. So let's see the second thing they give to Joseph in verses 15 through 17. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. 
So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle, the herds, and the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. So the people come to Joseph and they say, hey man, we, we, we've given you all our money. The grain is gone. Uh, we're going to starve to death unless you can give us more grain. And so Joseph actually does something very kind. He says, you know what? Sell me your livestock. In the midst of a famine where the livestock can't be fed, they're, they're pretty much worthless. I mean, you can eat them, but then they're gone. So, you know, the value of the livestock is to keep them alive, keep them breeding, but you can't give, keep them alive because there's nothing for them to eat. So the fact that Joseph would purchase them from them is, a, is great on his half because he could just say, well, your livestock aren't worth anything, so I can just gouge you right now. He says, you know what? Give the livestock and I will give you equal uh, grain in regard to that. And he, with all the grain he has, is actually able to keep the livestock alive. Um, and so they do this exchange. They give the livestock to Joseph and it makes the, them be able to live for a whole nother year uh, with the grain that they get from the livestock. But once again, the famine's not done. They run out of food. And so now they've given all the money. They've given all their livestock and they're still in need of grain. And so let's see the third and fourth thing they're willing to give to Joseph in order to survive. Verse 18. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, Will we not hide from my Lord that our money is gone? My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priest he did not buy, for the priest had rationed allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So the grain has lasted a whole nother year because of the livestock, but the famine's long, and now everybody is starving once again. And so they come back to Joseph. Hey, we've given you all our money. We've given you all of our livestock, but why should we die? We will sell you our land and we will sell you ourselves. The only two things that we still have left, we'll sell it, Pharaoh can have our land and he can have us as servants if you will give us grain to keep us alive through the rest of this famine. And so Joseph agrees and they sell the land to Pharaoh and Pharaoh then takes occupation of all the land of Egypt except one portion of the land that he did not own, which was the land that the priests owned, because Pharaoh, as he's taking care of Jacob's family, the 70 there in Goshen, he's also taking care of the priests. He allotted food to them uh, to make sure that they had what they needed for the famine. And so they're, they're eating fine, and they don't need to sell their land because they already have food. So they kept their land, but they're the only people who were able to keep their land. Everyone else sold their land and themselves to... Pharaoh. And now we're going to see Joseph's going to challenge them now with the new reality that, you know, hey, you're servants of Pharaoh. This is something that's now required of you. And we're going to see how the people respond to what Joseph has done for them. Verses 23 through 26. Then Joseph said to the people, indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and for food for those of your household and as food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Joseph tells the people, all right, now with what's gone on, I bought your land and I have purchased you, and I am going to now provide grain for you to last the rest of this famine, and I'm going to make sure that you survive and you don't die. But now you're going to have to pay back 
Pharaoh through your service because now you are his servants. And so here's what I'm going to ask of you. I'm going to give you seed to plant. And as the famine finishes and things start to grow again, here's what you're going to do. You're going to not only plant the seed, you're also going to harvest the seed. And Joseph could say, and 100% of what you get, you're going to give to Pharaoh because it's his land and you serve him. And that would be fair because that's ultimately the situation that they're in. But that's not what Joseph does. He says, all I ask from you is that you give one-fifth, 20% of what grows back to Pharaoh, and you get to keep four-fifths, 80% for yourself and for your families to survive on. And so you're going to be the ones who plant, you're going to be the ones who harvest, and you only have to give 20% of what you bring back to Pharaoh as um, a reward ultimately for the fact that he owns you and owns this land. And he made it a law from that day all the way till now that Pharaoh still gets 20% of all that grows except for the land of the priests because they didn't sell their land to Pharaoh. And I want you to notice the response of the people. And this is kind of where I want to draw a point for us personally. Joseph's been very fair. He hasn't sold the grain for more than it's worth. The only problem for them is they just didn't have a way to earn more money. And so their money ran out because they couldn't earn anymore. It wasn't that he was gouging the prices. He was giving them a fair price. They just couldn't earn anymore. He was kind to them for actually allowing them to sell their livestock who are really worthless if you don't have any grain. But yet he buys it and gives them a whole nother year's worth of grain. And now the land that he buys from them, he could have said, you know what? You guys will serve on this land and you'll do everything for free and we will take everything from you because now you're just slaves of Pharaoh. He says, you know what? When you serve on this land, you get to keep 80% of what grows and I'm only asking for you to give Pharaoh 20%. So he's been very fair to them and notice the response. You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servant. Notice the people have no problem with serving Pharaoh. They have no problem with giving 20% of the labor that they're going to ultimately do and give it to Pharaoh. Why? Because, Joseph, you've saved our lives. If it wasn't for you, we would be dead. And so you deserve, and Pharaoh deserves, the fact our service and he deserves the 20% of ultimately our, you know, what we do in the future. And so they're, they're, they're not against this. They think, you know, this is perfectly reasonable. You know, this is especially for what you've done for us and saving us that, you know, Pharaoh and you deserve this. Now, I want to take a moment here and just ponder this because as we so often look through, you know, Genesis and we see Joseph as kind of that Christ-like figure, But I want us to realize, you know, Jesus, he did something for us far better than what Joseph does for the land of Egypt and the world at that time. He doesn't just save us from a famine. He saves us from our sin. And as we look at what Jesus has done, we realize, you know, just like Joseph did to the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the people who were there, he says, now that we've saved you, We're going to ask you to serve us and we're going to ask you to give 20% of what you work and earn. Jesus says, now that I have saved you and you follow me, I want you to serve me. I want to be your master and I want you to be my servant. And I want you to give me a percentage of what you earn. And the question I want to throw out there is, what is our response to the reality of what Jesus asks of us? You you read this story and you think, well, surely the Egyptians should be happy and say, well, absolutely, you know, we'll give this to you. You deserve it. You saved our lives. I mean, you, you deserve our service. You deserve our money. But yet I'm saddened by so many Christians when Jesus has done far more than Joseph did for these Egyptians who say, oh, wait a second now, serve you with my life? I mean, I got so many things that I want to do for myself and serving myself. And so, you know, I can give you maybe an hour on Sunday, but, you know, I mean, the rest of my life and the rest of my time to, to get to you and to serve you, uh, that's a little much, Jesus. I think you're, you're asking too much from me. You don't really deserve that much. 
give you a tithe of what I earn? I mean, I work hard for this money. You want me to give back to you? I mean, come on, I want to use this for myself. Instead of having the mindset of, you have saved me from hell. You sacrificed yourself for me. You took the judgment that I deserve. There's nothing that I could ever give. There's nothing that I could ever do that would ever give back to you what you deserve. So if you want me to serve you with my life, absolutely. You want me to give a percentage of my money to you? Absolutely. Why? Because you deserve it for all that you've done for me. The fourth thing I want us to take note of is we should respond to what Jesus has done for us and given to us by giving to Him all He asked for. And if we're at a place where it's like, you know what, I'm not willing to give you my service, my time, my money, my treasures, talents, whatever it may be, really ultimately what you're saying is, you know what, Jesus, you don't really deserve that from me. And that's a pretty insane statement to make when you really sit back and think of what you're saying is, yeah, the, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who gave his life for me, he, he's not deserving of mine. He's not deserving of what I have. I mean, everything that we do, everything that we work for, it's only because he enables us. It's only because he blesses us with the ability to actually do it. But yet so often it's like, well, this is mine. I've worked so hard. I'm keeping this. Instead of realizing, no, Lord, I'm here for you. It comes back to that perspective of the pilgrim. We realize why we're here. We realize we're just passing through. We're just living for Jesus. And so, hey, I have no problem giving back to you what's yours already. I have no problem serving you. You deserve it for all that you've done for me. We're going to finish this chapter seeing what Jacob asked Joseph to promise that he will do from him. Verse 27. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him, and Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. So now we jump ahead 17 years. Remember, we just had you know Israel standing before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, how old are you? And he says, I'm 130. And now he's 147. 17 years have gone by, and this is a wonderful thing. I mean, he already came really old. I remember when he showed up at the end of last chapter, he hugs his son, and he says, you know what, now I can die. I've finally seen that you're alive, and I'm already old as it is, and you know, I can die. But you know what, God blesses him with 17 more years with Joseph, 17 more years with his sons and his grandson and his great-grandsons, and maybe now he might even have great-great-grandsons. You know, God has blessed him and notice he's also able to see something, a little bit of the promise of God starting to be fulfilled because we're told that they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. So in these 17 years, remember God said, I'm going to make you a great nation in Egypt and they're multiplying exceedingly. He's starting to see, wow, Lord, I get it. You're actually going to do this. I'm starting to see that we've gone from 70 to who knows how big they are after 17 years. But he's getting a little taste of the promise of the Lord. And God's letting him see that and enjoy fellowship with his family, especially his son, who he was separated for 22 years from. And now he's at the point where he's about to die. He's 147 years old. He knows his death is coming soon. And so he calls Joseph to him. And I want you to note what he asks of Joseph. He says, If I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. So as Israel's about to die, he calls in Joseph and he says, Joseph, I want you to put your hand under my thigh. 
And we kind of think like, what's going on? Remember back with Abraham when he sent out, you know, Eliezer to find a bride for his son? Hey, Eliezer, put your hand under my thigh. We're going to make a covenant here. You're going to promise to do what I've said of you to do. And it was a custom back then. And this is what now Israel is doing with Joseph. Here, put your hand under my thigh. We're going to make a covenant. You're going to promise to do something that I feel is very important for me. And what he asked Joseph to do is promise that you do not bury me here in Egypt. I don't want my body that's left dead staying here. I want it to be buried in the promised land with my fathers. Remember the, the uh, where the only place that Abraham ever owned was that one grave where he put his wife, and then he's in, and Isaac's in, and Jacob wants to be in there as well. And so he asks Joseph, you promise, I'm going to die here in Egypt, but I want you to put me and my bones back in the promised land. And so Joseph says, yes, I'll do it. And Jacob says, no, 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 swear to me that you'll do it. And so Joseph swears. They have this covenant promise that this is going to happen. You know, I really like this because I think this is a great picture of what Jesus promises to do for us when we die. And as I've already mentioned, Egypt in the Bible is so often a picture of the world. The promised land is so often a picture of heaven. And we have this situation where now Jacob is depending on the promise of Joseph to take him from Egypt to the promised land. And in the same way, we are ultimately depending on the promise of Jesus to take us from this world to heaven. We're trusting in that promise that Jesus has said to us that He is going to do that. In John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says this, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a wonderful promise that Jesus gives to us right now. He is in heaven preparing a place for you and for me. And he says, you know what? If I go to prepare a place for you, guess what? I'm also going to come back and get you so I can take you to that place. I'm not just preparing it for nothing. I'm preparing it for you. And I'm going to bring you to the home that I prepared for you. And there's two ways to get there. We can die right now, and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so if we die, we're going to go and we're going to be there in the presence of Jesus, and He's going to give us that home. And there's another way that the Bible speaks of, that the Lord is going to come back and rapture His church, and He's going to bring us to where He is now, preparing a place for us. But either way, we are placing our trust in a promise. The promise of Jesus that says, hey, where I've gone, I'm going to bring you. Jesus, as the Bible speaks of, is the first fruits. He's the one who's already risen from the dead. He's the one who's already shown, hey, I can now have a glorified body. I can dwell at the right hand of the Father. I've shown that I am capable of doing this, and so I can do this for you. I can take your dead body. I can resurrect you. I can give you a new heavenly glorified body, and I can take you to be with me in heaven. And so we are trusting in that promise that when we die, this isn't it. We're not just buried in the ground and that's all there is. If that's all there is, then hey, why not just live for everything that this world has? Why not just indulge yourself? If this life is all there is and there's nothing beyond it, then live it up. But as believers, we realize, no, there's something far more than just there's an eternity at stake. And we put our trust in the one who saved us from our sins, saved us from the judgment of hell, and will make it possible for us to go with him and be in heaven. And I think this reality should really cause us to do the four things that we took note of tonight. Because you and I are going to spend our eternity with Jesus, dwelling with Him, and guess what? We're also going to dwell with all the other believers of all time, all together in heaven. Because of that reality, we should regularly take time to dwell with Jesus here and dwell with other believers here. I mean, since that's our eternity, 
since that was what we're going to be doing forever, let's start engaging in that now. Let's dwell and spend time regularly with the one who saved us, but also spend time regularly with other believers that are in the family of Christ. And you know what? This will ultimately help us from dwelling the world and allowing the things of the world to sidetrack us from what God wants. Because we're going to spend an eternity dwelling with Jesus in heaven, we need to understand we're just pilgrims passing through. This world is not our home. This isn't what we should be focused on and dwelling on and and living for. Don't store up treasures here on earth. Instead, focus on storing up treasures in heaven. Because we're going to spend eternity dwelling with Jesus and everyone in this world who puts their faith in Him, we should always seek to be a blessing to the people in this world. We should want to see heaven packed. It shouldn't be, oh, I hope I just make it and it's just me and Jesus on a little island. Man, We should realize, man, I want as many people as possible to have the privilege of being a child of God. As many people as possible to have the privilege of going from hell to heaven, of darkness to light. And we know that the only way they're ever going to recognize how to do that is if we share with them the good news of the gospel, if we're a light to them and proclaim the good news so that they can realize there's such so much more for them than what this world offers. And because we're going to spend eternity dwelling with Jesus in heaven, we should respond to what Jesus has done for us and given to us by giving to him all he asks for. I mean, if that's really our mindset, I'm going to be living with you forever, then why is it hard for us here to say, well, here's my life. Let let me give it to you. I mean, you've already made it possible for me to have eternity where there's no more sadness, no more tears, no more sin, no more suffering. You're taking me to the greatest place ever and I get to dwell there with you forever. You know, it's not too much to ask for me to serve you for the 30 or 50 or 80 or however many years I have in this life. It's not too much to ask for you to ask me to just even just give a percentage, not every dime I make, but a percentage of my money back to you. It's not too much for you to ask of me to to give you my time. I mean, all these things should be a natural response to say, man, for what you've done for me, is that all you're asking? I mean, you, you deserve more than that. You know, but, but I'll give it to you. Whatever you want from me, I'm willing to give to you because you deserve it. And if you don't think that he deserves it, maybe you don't really grasp what he's done. Maybe you don't really get the depth of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what you now have received because of it. Because if you think that anything that you gain in this life is worth holding on to and not giving back to him, you kind of missed what he's done and how deserving he really is. So in this chapter, we see several good challenges for us that I hope we can not just understand intellectually, but actually put into practice and see a change in the way in which we live. So any thoughts on what we looked at tonight?